Let's take our Bibles tonight, if you would please, and we'll open them to the book of 2 John. I've been thinking about uh, a new study for our Sunday night series, and I've been thinking about it and praying about it. Finally, I came to the conclusion that we're going to start a series in Revelation in about three weeks. But before we do that, I, I felt compelled to preach a, a short series on Second and Third John. So I'm going to preach three sermons from these two little books that you find towards the end of the New Testament. And these are the shortest books that are in the New Testament. They're one chapter, and in the Greek language they contain fewer words than two other books that are one chapter, Philemon and the book of Jude. And so we're going to preach uh, just three sermons here in these two little books. And maybe you might wonder, well, why don't we start with 1 John? I mean, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, they're all right in order, right towards the end of the New Testament. So why don't we do that? Well, sometime we might preach through 1 John. I might do that at a later time. But for brevity, for time's sake, because I want to get into the Revelation series, I decided just to take 2 and 3 John because what they are is a, is a microcosm of the same theme that we find in 1 John. These two books are discussions on truth and discussions about love for one another and how that our love for one another is based in the truth. Now, in particular, what John is dealing with in these two books is the problem of false teachers. And he's talking about these false teachers who would travel around to different places and they would try to insert their heretical doctrines. And because the Scriptures teach us that Christians are to be hospitable people... There were many of these false teachers that took advantage of Christian hospitality. And so when they would come around visiting, people would help them. And John is writing to them to warn them about that. Now, here's something we need to understand. All of the apostles were missionaries. Now, usually we think of the apostle Paul as being the only missionary. But really, all of them did missionary work, traveling around in different speaking in different places, and especially after the dispersion of the Jews, after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70, there were a lot more traveling missionaries. And these early missionaries depended upon the help that they would receive from different Christian communities as they traveled around. They didn't have hotels and motels and places like that to stay, and most of the places where they would stay were, was, were well, it was just a place we wouldn't even think about staying today. So they needed help as they were traveling around. So as I said, many false teachers would take advantage of that hospitality and they would get into these Christian groups and begin to insert that false doctrine. Now what John is trying to show us here that we are to be friendly and caring people, but the basis for our, our uh, friendship and the way that we help people is to be based in the truth, the truth of God's Word. And so when people start to take advantage of that, then what we have to do is call a halt to it. We have to stop because when we help false doctrine, we will at the same time hinder false doctrine. And so if you give encouragement to people that travel around or people that go around house to house and they're teaching things that aren't true, you're actually encouraging them. And so John's talking about this. So that's kind of the background theme as we look at Second and Third John. These are complementary books. In this first book, uh, John talks about the rejection of false teachers. And in 3 John, he'll speak about the reception of true teachers. One thing we also need to remember, that just like we found out in our study of 1 Corinthians, early churches in the first century had problems. Sometimes we don't think they would have problems. I mean, they're so close to the apostolic era. They have the apostles right there, in many cases, that preach in the churches. So why do they have so much trouble? 
And if we think that they didn't, we're wrong because they did. Seeds of apostasy were already being sown in the first century. So we could imagine then without the rapid communication that we have today and you have all these uh, Christian groups and you have churches springing up where the apostles have preached, it's hard for them to keep control of all that's going on. And so that's why uh, John, one of the reasons why John writes this book to warn people about the false teachers who would come around. So that's the theme of the letters. Now this evening, we're going to begin with 2 John. Tonight, we're going to study just the first three verses of 2 John. So stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Uh, 2 John, verse number 1. Has everybody found it? Okay. All right. 2 John, verse number 1. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for the time we have to spend together tonight. Uh, Help us, Lord, as we study your word, and may we learn something that will encourage us in our Christian lives and what we should do in our love for one another and how we should guard ourselves against false teaching. Bless in this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated first thing we notice about 2 John is the common way of writing letters in the first century. Now, what we do when we write a letter today, uh, if you want to do this at least, you can pull up Microsoft Word, and there you'll have a template in there that uh, can help you to organize your letter and send a letter to someone. Well, in the first century, of course, they didn't have computers. They didn't have Microsoft Word. There was no Bill Gates at that time. And so John didn't have his computer to use, but he did use a template. He used the same form of writing that people would use in the first century. Now, one of the things that they did, they would open up their letters uh, with the, uh, telling the person, uh, telling the people that they're writing to who the person is that's writing. Now, most of the time, we sign our names at the end of a letter. But John didn't do that. He, he begins the letter by calling himself the, the, the elder. And so as he writes to these people, he, he tells them who he is. He, he uh, gives them a greeting. He begins to discuss uh, what's, what the, the thing that's on his mind. That's the body of the letter. And then he has a closing statement in which he desires to come and see them. And again, that's a common way of writing letters in the first century. Well, it seems like a very simple beginning, uh, not too hard to figure out. But in fact, the beginning of Second John is actually shrouded in a lot of controversy. First of all, people wonder... Who is this elder? Because John doesn't actually name himself here. And who's the elect lady that he's writing to? What does that mean? Now, John doesn't mention his name. And so there are some people who propose that the apostle John is not actually the writer of this letter. That there could have been someone else. Possibly there are even two Johns. One who called himself the elder and another who was John the apostle. Who, uh, and they lived in close proximity to one another. Well, I'm not going to go into those proofs that people, uh, people use for the different, different authorship of this book. I think it's clear enough from, from reading this, the internal evidence is enough, that shows us that the Apostle John is the author of the book, just like tradition says that he is. But he didn't give his name. And possibly, I think, the reason that he didn't, or probably the main reason that he didn't, was because he was so well known to these people. He can refer to himself as the elder, Now, John was a very old man at this time. Uh, He accompanied Jesus in his ministry, in Jesus' ministry. Jesus died uh, in AD 30 or 37, whichever you ascribe to. And um, 
John, this particular book here, or Second John rather, was written about 90 A.D. So that would have made John a very old man, possibly 85 or 90 years old. And so if he calls himself the elder, who's going to dispute that? that that's a pretty old guy. So that might be why he calls himself the elder. Uh, otherwise, some people propose, well, maybe he calls himself the elder because that's a title that he's using. And in fact, this word elder is the same word from which we get uh, uh, presbyter. If you've ever heard the term presbyter, it means an official, someone who's in charge. And certainly John, being the last surviving uh, apostle, he was someone who had authority and he was in charge. And so whether you call him John the elder because of his age or John the elder because of his position, both of those or either one of them is correct. So you're not going to go wrong in believing either one. I want to begin our outline tonight by speaking of the brotherly love of the author. Now, surely if we're uh, reading a book that focuses on love, John the Apostle would be the first person that would come to our mind. He is self-described as the apostle whom Jesus loved. And in the Gospel of John, and here in Second John, love is one of his themes. Now, particularly in the Gospel of John, uh, he's the one who brings out Jesus' teachings about how we're to love one another and how the identifying mark of a Christian is really the way that we do love one another and the evidence that we give of our love to Christ by the keeping of Christ's commandments. Next week, we'll get a little bit more into that, how that demonstrates our love. But notice how he begins here. He says, The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. I mentioned a moment ago that the addressee of the letter is also controversial. What does John mean when he says the elect lady? Some people think, well, John's using a metaphor for the church. But that seems like kind of a strange thing for John to do because he'd have to labor throughout this whole, whole, whole book, the whole letter, to maintain that analogy. And secondly, when we look at Third John, it's definitely addressed to an individual by the name of Gaius. So since the books are complementary and have a similar theme, it seems reasonable to assume that John is talking to an individual. Some people think that the word lady here is actually a a, a, a formal name. It comes from the same word, if you've ever heard the name Kyria. Have you ever heard that name before? I don't think you hear it too much around anymore, but Kyria is a a proper name that comes from this, this very word that's used here. Uh, It's also the same word from which we get the Aramaic word Martha, like Martha and Mary in the New Testament. Then there are some people who think, well, John is actually writing to Mary, who's the mother of Jesus. She'd be 100 years old or older if that's who he was writing to, so it's probably not her. So I think what John is doing here, he's writing to an unnamed individual in one of the churches, and he calls her the elect lady. And simply, he means by that that she's one of God's chosen people. Here's something that we notice about New Testament writers. Paul, Peter, John, even Jesus don't have any problem at all referring to Christians as the elect. The same word as if you said they're believers, if they're saints, if they're God's sheep. It's the very same word. It all amounts to the same thing, and it points to the sovereignty of God. A few weeks ago, I was talking to one of the men in our church, and we were discussing sermons. And uh, this particular person said, seems like we hear a lot about sovereignty of God and about election and things like that. And I said, why shouldn't we? It seems like every time you turn a page in the Bible, you come across it. So you have to mention it, don't you? Especially if you're studying verse by verse, you have to mention those kinds of things. So I think when John calls her the elect lady, he simply means he's writing to a person who's chosen by God. 
Here he expresses her love for her, and he says, I love you in the truth. That doesn't translate into, I truly love you, like he's writing a romantic letter. That's not what he's doing. But he's saying that our love is based upon the truth. So I think that we can see, first of all, in this statement, that what John does is he gives this lady a commendation for her faith. He commends her for being a person of faith. Now, faith is not even mentioned in the passage, but whenever you see truth used in this way, that's what it's referring to. It's referring to the faith of the Lord or considering the entire body of the Christian faith. Do you remember when we were discussing in in Ephesians about the belt of truth in Ephesians chapter 6? And what Paul was talking about there, he's talking about uh, contending for and, and knowing the doctrines of the Word of God, contending for the things of the gospel of Christ and all the things that Jesus and the apostles taught. Truth is another way of saying the faith of Christ. And Jude used it that way. Remember when he says earnestly contend for the faith. He means stand up for the gospel. Stand up for the truth. Be the kind of people that can defend what you believe. So here's a wonderful commendation for this lady. Some people have commented that it's really unusual that John would give a lady or a woman this kind of commendation. Now, of course, we know that women are well able to contend for the faith. We need ladies that are strong in the faith, and I hope that each of you here tonight, you, you ladies, you are, are contenders for the faith. But it is noteworthy here that John talks or uses these words about a lady. You see, one of the problems with traveling teachers in the first century was one of the things they did was they went around trying to confuse women. Now, I want you to turn to Second Timothy for just a moment. Because uh, Paul is talking about uh, false teachers that come, and he's speaking to Timothy, and he, and he speaks particularly about the powers of deception that false teachers have over women. Second Timothy chapter 3, let's look at verse number 1, verses 1 through 7. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Now that's the the description of the false teachers. Look at verse number 6. For of this sort are they which creep into houses... And lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lust, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, Paul says that's what will happen in the last days. But we notice that Paul has a way of relating the last days to what was happening right at that very time. Now, I know I'm going to have to tread very lightly in what I have to say next. In many ways, it's easier to get women to listen to religious teachings than it is men. Men think that they're so macho that they don't need anything. They're not going to listen to anybody. They've got something to prove, whatever that might be. And so men will very often turn away from a gospel presentation when a woman will sit there and listen to what's being said. When Satan came to deceive Adam and Eve, who did he go to? He went to Eve. Matter of fact, the Bible says that Eve was the first in transgression. And I think the reason that... that Satan went to Eve instead of Adam because he was trying to get her on his side and he knew that he would have an ally. And so he went, when he went to Adam and tempted him with the same, then Adam would give in to that. 
Did you know that false teachers today will use the very same kind of tactic? There are people like Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons that that will travel around in the daytime, and the reason that they do it is they're more likely to catch a woman at home in the daytime than they are a man. Did you ever think about that? Now, that's less true today than it was 30 or 40 years ago. But even in in most parts of the country, it is true. You're more likely to find a woman at home during the daytime than you will a man. How many of you ever had a Jehovah Witness come to your home very late in the evening, after dark, like sometimes we might do when we go to someone's house and, and speak to someone about the gospel? You ever see a Mormon come very late in the evening? You know why they don't do that? because they're more likely to catch women at home. And so they think if they can convince the woman, then it'd be so much easier to get to the man. I don't, I don't know if you remember this story that I told you before, but I'm not too proud to tell an old joke, so I'm going to tell it to you again. But there was a lady who had some trouble with Jehovah Witnesses that were coming to her house, and she didn't know what to do. I mean, she didn't really know very much about Jehovah Witness doctrine, and And uh, so she was flustered every time that they would come to her house to speak to her. So she decided that she was going to kind of hone up her skills a little bit on what Jehovah Witnesses believe. So she got some information and she read it. Then she figured out some of the things that Jehovah Witnesses believe. She found out, first of all, that they don't believe in voting. They don't believe in Christmas. And they don't believe in saying the Pledge of Allegiance. So she got herself ready for the next Jehovah Witnesses who had come. She went to the courthouse and she got some voter registration cards and brought those home with her. She went to, uh, to a department store and she got some CDs of Christmas carols and brought those home. And while she was there, she brought a large American flag. So she took all those things home with her and she just waited for the Jehovah Witnesses to show up at her door. Well, sure enough, it wasn't very long till she spotted two ladies that were coming up the sidewalk and they were getting ready to knock on the door. But before they could actually knock... She swung open the door, and she says, Come on in, I've been expecting you. What I want you to do, I want you to sit down, and I want you to listen to what I have to say before you are allowed to say anything. Then I'll let you talk. She said, Now, first of all, I believe that it's the duty of every American citizen to vote. So we're going to fill out voter registration cards. And so she had those ladies fill out the voter registration cards. And then she said, I think that all of us ought to honor the Savior's birthday, so we're going to sing some Christmas carols. So here it was, middle of July. They get out the CDs, and they sang Christmas carols for about 15 minutes. After that was over, she stood up and said, I think that every American ought to respect the flag and respect their country, so we're going to say the Pledge of Allegiance. So she had those ladies stand up, and they stood there, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Then they sat down. The lady said, now, I'm finished. You can say what you have to say. And the older lady said to her, lady, I've been selling Avon for 20 years. You're the strangest person I ever met. (laughs) Anyway, back in the first century, it wasn't much different than it is now. Uh, People, these false teachers, they went around, they they looked for women that they could talk to, and that was their ticket, that's their ally to get to the men. So you have this problem of false teachers, and later on we're going to see what John says to do about that. But he starts out right here commending this lady for her faith. He loves her in the truth. And and that means that she was strong in her faith. And she wasn't the silly woman that Paul talked about in 2 Timothy that's led away by false teachers. 
Now, all of you ladies that are mad at me right now, let me pay you a compliment. I know that there are some of you, even here tonight, that when it comes to defending doctrine and contending for the faith, you could probably tie your husband's hands behind his back in this area. And that's exactly what we need. We need some women who are strong contenders for the faith. So John begins with that. He gives the lady a compliment about faith. Now, the next thing he says about her, he commends her for the reputation that she has among others. And John's not the only one who notices this. He says in the next part of the verse, and not only I, but also those that have known the truth. Others knew about this lady, and they knew that she was the one who loved the truth of God's word. So I guess you could say about her, 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 her faith in the Lord, her reputation was legendary. And so it might be that just as people referred to John as the elder, instead of using this lady's name, they may have just referred to her as the elect lady because she had such a great reputation. You know, I think that we do need ladies in the church that are kind of the, the go-to person for other ladies and that could help people in doctrines of, of the Word of God. We need those kinds of ladies. But there are many churches that do have go-to women, but they're not the women that you go to for doctrine. They're the women that you go to if you want to find the skinny on somebody. When you want to find out what everybody's doing, you remember this show that they had, TV show back in the 70s called Starskin Hutch? Y'all remember that show? Some of you are as old as I am, you may remember that. They were two really cool detectives. Had a red car with a stripe down the side. It was a Ford, by the way. And uh, uh, they were just, you know, really cool detectives. Well, they had this guy named Huggy Bear, and, and he's their streetwise informant. Anything you need to know, you go ask Huggy Bear. Now, to me, he looked like the guy, the first one you'd throw in jail. But he seemed to have, you know, knew what was going on all around town. So he'd, they'd come to Huggy Bear, and he'd say, word on the street is, and he'd start to lay out all the information. Well, you know what we have in churches? We have some Huggy Bear women. Now, Huggy Bear here was a man, I mean, in Starskin Hutch, but we have some Huggy Bear women. And so when you go ask them what's going on in the church, they'll say, word in the church is... And they lay it all out before. You got the lowdown on everybody. Not this lady. She has a reputation for faith and truth. Others knew about her. And John commends her for that. She has a reputation as the elect lady of truth. So he loved the truth. She loved the truth. And others loved her because of the truth. Now, let's talk about something that follows that up or goes along with it. Because John goes on to talk about the common bond of Christians. And the common bond of Christians is truth. He says, The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. So John loved her for the truth's sake. What does that really mean? What, what does he mean? I love you for the truth's sake. Well, I think it shows us that truth is the motive for love. People are really mixed up on this today because they think that love can stand independently of truth. They think that love means that no matter what you believe, no matter how you live, no matter what kind of doctrine you hold, I can accept you because I'm supposed to love you because love trumps all divides. And that's the basis for all these denominations that come together and they drop their doctrinal stands because it doesn't matter anymore. Christians are to be unified in their love. But when you think about it, if you remove truth from the equation, what is it that we any longer have in common? 
What do we have in common, with common, in common with people if they don't have the truth? I mean, if they don't have the gospel, if they don't have uh, the faith that's in God's word, what is going to hold us together if we don't have the common bond uh, of spiritual life that we have in Christ? What holds us to other people? In this church, we have a collection of people that come from many different backgrounds. We're different people. I mean, come from different parts of the country. Joe's comes from India. What do I have in common with Joe's? I mean, what would cause Joe's and I to come together? Gary, where is he? Eric, Gary. Gary was born in San Francisco. I was born in Kentucky. We grew up with very different views of things between San Francisco and Kentucky. So what do I have in common with Gary? Bob and Bronwyn are Raider fans. What in God's... What do I have in common with a Raider fan? Most of us are not going to get together, are we? I mean, we have different opinions. We come from different places. We're highly incompatible with one another, except for one thing. We're here because of the same truth. Does it make any difference if I go to South America, if I go to Africa? That would be true. I have something in common with those Christians because of the truth. Gary and I were in Israel, and uh, we went and visited a Christian college in Bethlehem. And this Christian college was run by an Arab Christian. There's only one thing that will ever cause me to get together with a Palestinian Arab, and that would be the truth. So that's the thing. That's the thing that holds us together. Our motive for love and our care and concern for one another is the truth that undergirds everything that we do in the church. So you can have a false professor, someone who doesn't believe the church, uh, the truth rather, and he comes into the church. We can exist side by side for a time, but that person will not stay with us because the truth will always weed him out. He won't continue. And that's because it's the truth that allies us. Truth is the common bond. So this is why John writes in 1 John, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Read that, read that chapter in 1 John. Check it out. You know what he's talking about? He's writing in the context of love and truth. Now remember, John's going to get into this whole idea of hospitality, and he's going to tell us, he's going to show us that the common bond of truth is the thing that we have together, and we have nothing in common with those who don't have the truth. And so we can't show the same kind of love that we do to Christians because we don't have the undergirding of truth. So I want you to notice the second thing in relation to that. There is a threefold support for love. Verse 2 is a great verse in 2 John. John says, The truth dwells in us and shall be with us forever. And so therefore, if, if truth is the thing that motivates our love, then our love is going to remain forever. Why is it there forever? I mean, why isn't it possible for someone who has this kind of love to lose that love? No one who truly has truth. That sounds kind of redundant, but no one who truly has truth can ever lose their love. And that's because love has threefold support. How is it supported? Well, number one, it's supported by the Lord of truth. Jesus is the Lord of truth. In John 1.17, John writes, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. It's an amazing way, amazing thing, the way that the Bible fits together. I mean, our love of truth flows out of our love for Christ. And Christ's love is an eternal love. Nothing could ever separate us from the love of Christ. 
Go to that familiar passage in Romans chapter 8. And what does it tell us there? Nothing separates us from Christ's love. Nothing separates our salvation from us. We're always in Christ. It abides forever. So nothing separates. And Jesus says, the same love that the Father loves me with is the same love that I love you with. And that's the basis for our love to each other. So the Lord of truth supports this. Now the second thing that supports love is the spirit of truth. John records the words of Jesus in John 14. He says that I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Listen, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. So the spirit of truth dwells in us forever. So if truth motivates our love, then the Holy Spirit, who is dwelling in us forever, continually motivates our love. So you could say the Holy Spirit is like the, like the engine underneath that keeps churning out this love that we have for Christ, a continual love, and keeps churning out that love that we have for each other. How long will you be a Christian? Forever. How long is Joseph going to be a Christian? Forever. So how long am I going to love Joseph? Forever. Gary is a Christian. How long am I going to love Gary? Forever. Bob and Bronwyn are Christians and Raider fans. How long am I going to love them? Seems impossible, but it's going to be forever. It will be absolutely forever. So you see, no Christian ever stops loving because we have that Holy Spirit continue dwelling in us, as I said, that keeps churning out the love. Now, the third thing is, the third thing that undergirds love is the word of truth. That's the third chord in the threefold strand. God's word is the everlasting truth. You know what the the Bible says about itself? Not one word of the Bible will ever pass away. It'll always be here. And the word keeps reminding me over and over again of God's truth. God gave me the word to read and study, to stay in here so that we understand, we draw strength from it, and we learn the truth. Because that undergirds love. So no Christian is ever going to stop loving the Word of God. And, and you know the reason why? The reason actually goes back to, to number one that we ju- just gave you a moment ago. And that's what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. It says He is the living Word. And so if Jesus Christ is the living Word, and this Bible is His Word, then that tells me I'm going to love the written Word of God forever. You'll never find a true Christian a true believer in Jesus Christ who will ever turn against the Word of God. So as, I, as long as I have the truth, it motivates my love. Truth dwells in me forever. That's what John says. And so I'm going to love forever. So that is a great verse, that second verse of Second John. But let's hurry and finish here. The third thing I want to talk to you about is the grace bestowed by God. So we have the brotherly love that's shown by the author, the common bond between Christians, and then the grace bestowed by God. Verse 3 says, Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. So very quickly, here's what we see, that the source of grace is the Father. Let's go back to what John taught there in the first verse. He calls this lady the elect lady. Now, I can never read something like that and pass up the opportunity to talk about God's grace. God's grace is from everlasting to everlasting. God's grace did not start with the creation of the world. In fact, the Bible teaches us that God's grace started before the foundation of the world. 
It started when God said that he would have a people for his own. Now, since there weren't any people before the foundation of the world, that tells us that God's grace could not be motivated by the person, by people, or by any creature. God's grace must start in himself. So the motive for God's grace is God alone. God's the inventor of grace. So God's the author. He's the source of grace, mercy, and peace. God didn't look down through time to see what you would do, see how you would react when you heard the gospel or anything else. God already had this decided, and he bestowed the grace because he is a gracious God. It's just like we talked about Wednesday night. It's God who starts the work. The second thing that we notice is the channel for grace, and that's the Son. The scripture that we read a moment ago in the Gospel of John says, Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, here's the problem for us. God is in heaven. God is a spirit. And there's no way that we can relate to God because we are in the flesh. So do you know what Jesus did? He became flesh. That's the way that we relate to him. Here's what John says, John 1.18. The way that we understand the Father is because Jesus became flesh. He says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. That's what Jesus came into the world to do, was to declare the Father. So God's grace also came through Jesus Christ when he became incarnate. He became flesh. He revealed the Father. And Jesus said, I and my Father are one. That is a cardinal doctrine taught in 2 John. And you'll see it a little bit later. We'll see it next week. That we absolutely must believe the truth about Jesus Christ. That he is deity. That he is God. He is eternal as God is eternal. He's one with the Father. Co-equal and co-eternal. That's a very important doctrine that we must believe. So, John says, Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is that grace and mercy and peace flow from both God and the Son because they are eternally one in truth and love. So what we have here in three short verses is a wonderful and powerful beginning to Second John. Because the letter is brief does not mean it's insignificant. There's some great truth here and some great depth of meaning. So the elder writes to the elect lady. He's the disciple that Jesus loves. He called himself that. But what John learned to do as he went around traveling with Christ and as a believer in Jesus as his Savior, he knew the thing for every Christian to do is to share that love with other people. He loves this lady. He loves her in the truth. And he has some important things to say to her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the time we've spent together tonight. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word and how that the truth is the thing that supports the love that we have for one another. I ask you, Lord, that we would be contenders for the faith, that we would be people who are strong in the truth and be able to defend everything that we believe. Bless in our invitation tonight and the fellowship that follows, and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.